Hey gang, this is Pastor Eric uh, from uh, Epiphany Lutheran Church in New York City, a church planter here of that church and contributor to Christ Hold Fast. Good to be with you here on uh, this Friday uh, at our normal time, right around 9 a.m. Uh, today we're going to be beginning a brand new series of devotions uh, looking at uh, the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a short little book in the Old Testament, but it is packed with much punch. And in some ways, I think the book of Ruth is really a story of God working through our crosses. It's a, it's a story about the theology of the cross, really, as experienced in real life. And so I hope that we can get much out of this. We'll be camping in the book of Ruth for many weeks to come. We're going to take it slow. And so with that being said, let's, uh, let's dive right into verses 1 through 5. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Milan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not to be confused with Oprah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Milan and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Well, how do we make sense of the way God works in the lives of his people? I think that is a question that comes to mind as we read the opening of this book. One Christian goes to work and finds out that they're getting a promotion and a raise. Another Christian on his way to work is hit by a truck. One Christian proposes to his girlfriend and she says, yes, while another Christian has her boyfriend cheat on her. Now you notice how with the first person in the examples I just gave, in each scenario, you're, you're not even sort of surprised to hear it. When we hear that good things are happening to people, we sort of expect it. Um, the guy goes to work and participates in upward mobility and we say, all right, yeah, that's, that's the way things are supposed to go. And a girl says yes to a marriage proposal and we say, of course, but the second experience, no matter how long we live, no matter how many times we hear it, still kind of smacks us across the face. It's not supposed to be like that. That's the way we inherently feel, that whenever bad things happen at all, we are sort of surprised by it. And not that that's inherently a bad thing. I mean, we don't want to be pessimists always walking around expecting bad things. But I think for many of us, we're just sort of prone to getting good things, especially here in the, in the West. And yet, the reality is we hear and experience things every day that contradict this sort of ultra-optimistic worldview about life. We go through pain ourselves. We go through difficulty ourselves. And so... When we go through that kind of stuff, it causes us to ask questions. It causes us to sort of go to a place that we might not normally go when things are going well. You know, when things are going tough, we go, well, maybe I wasn't walking close enough with the Lord. Or maybe I have some secret sin in my life that God is punishing me for, and that's why 
things aren't going the way I want it to. We so desperately want a reason that we'll just make stuff up like this with no scriptural basis at all. We'll just start becoming little philosophers that try and figure out the mind of God. And in the story that we're going to be going through over the next number of weeks, we're going to meet uh, some women and one woman in particular named Naomi that appears to be going through random, pointless suffering at the hands of God. She says that. She feels as if God is punishing her. And yet as we move through the narrative, what we're going to learn, as it still is in life for us today, is that once again, God's ways are not our ways and his plan is greater than ours. That he sees the end game and that that really does make all the difference in the world for our life. So, but before we dig into that, uh, let's, uh, let's just go through a few interesting things in the chapter, give you some historical context, and then we'll wrap it up. First of all, the author of our story today tells us that this all happened in the days of the Judges. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, then you know that this is not a particularly beautiful time in the nation of Israel's history. The Judges is a brutal time where people are doing just whatever they want. As a matter of fact, the last line in the book, quote-unquote, says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Sound familiar? This was ethical relativism, moral relativism, before modern intellectuals actually came up with the term. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The commands of the Lord that had been delivered to them by Moses just a few centuries earlier had been ignored and no longer were seen as relevant to people's lives. Uh, the people did whatever they felt like doing, and as always is the case, when a society is led by whatever any particular individual feels like doing, feels like uh, doing at any given time, eventually that society will crumble. It will break down. And that's what really is happening in Israel. There's rape, there's murder, there's chaos all around. So it's no wonder that we are told at the very beginning of the book of Ruth that God has brought a famine upon the people of Israel. After all, if everyone does what they see fit with no sort of rule, then who wants to waste time actually cultivating crops when you can just steal crops from the dude who already cultivates those crops? Uh, famine sweeps the land of Bethlehem in Israel, probably, as is so often the case, as a combination of both God's judgment and man's sinfulness. They go hand in hand. Remember the book of Romans tells us that one of the ways God shows his judgment is by handing us over to do what we want. Um, one of the worst things that can happen to us is God just allowing us to do whatever we want because <laughs> we're unrestrained in our sin, and our sin hurts ourselves and hurts others. And so it's in that context that this man, Elimelech, like any wise man, decides that he will take his family away from famine in Bethlehem and try to find food and safety and provision for those he loves by taking them to a country called Moab. Now, Moab would tend to be uh, more fertile, according to what we know of the geography and of all the uh, neighbors that were not so friendly with Israel. Moab eh, tended to be at least an ally sometimes. Um, they had a common ancestry. Abraham was the father of Israel, whereas Lot, Abraham's nephew, was the father of Moab. Um, and therefore, they had some sense of connection and yet they did not worship the same God. 
uh, as Moab was absolutely filled to the brim with, with idols. So even though Elimelech and his family would be foreigners in Moab, at least they wouldn't be its, uh, in sort of strong enemy territory. So it makes sense for him to look to this place. And it appears, at least at first, that things might just be better beyond the horizon, out of this place of famine and moral relativism in Israel. But the author makes it very, very clear that just the opposite happens. As they are heading for new green pastures, we read, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And then a little later on, they lived there ten years, and both of the sons died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, what are left here are three widows, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. You have to remember, at the time, historically, there were no safety nets. There was no means by which a widow could provide for herself. She was entirely dependent upon her husband or upon somebody else in the community to take care of her, and there just wasn't that many people in the community to take care of her. And it's not just Naomi, it's not just Oprah, Orpah, it's Ruth, it's three widows that have no means of taking care of themselves. And so, uh, Naomi is now a widow and has to go through the great pain of dealing with life without her husband. So, what does she do? says, maybe I can move back home and maybe I can find somebody there to take pity on me and my daughter-in-laws. Indeed, that is what happens uh, in ways she could have never predicted. And to close, that is often the case in our lives. It is often when we feel completely obliterated by our circumstances, when the cross has brought us to a place of desperation and we are left with quite literally no solutions to our problems, no answers. We don't feel that there is any real reason for why we're enduring what we're enduring, and we don't feel like we have any hope of finding a reason or a reason to even go on. It's there that God reveals his grace to us, his power to us, and his care for us in completely unpredictable ways. This is at its heart, the way the theology of the cross works. God is doing his greatest work in us so often in the midst of our suffering and difficulty and challenge. And I know that if you're suffering right now, listening to this, that that is insanely hard to believe. I know it. No one feels like that's true when they're going through suffering. No one feels like this is God doing his greatest work in me. This is God really doing something. We don't. We resist. Every part of us resists that. But when we look throughout Scripture, it is when things seem most dire that God is glorifying himself the most and doing the most in his people's lives. The ultimate evidence of that, of course, is the crucifixion of Jesus where the world felt that they had won, where the devil felt that he had finally had victory, where it seemed that God had actually lost being pinned to a cross, unable to get down. 
but it is there and there alone that God most magnifies his great plan of salvation for the world. In the midst of pain and blood and suffering and difficulty, that's where the glory of God is found, in the cross. And that is where God's work is found so often in our lives too. I'll close with this quote from the Apostle Paul that I think emphasizes this well. You're familiar with it, I'm sure, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. He's complaining about an enduring thorn in his side that he has begged God to take away from him. And he writes this, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In response to that, Paul then says this, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Those are the words of a theologian of the cross. And may those become our words as we dig into this story of the cross. That's it for today. Next week, we'll, get, we'll dig further into Ruth's narrative and talk a bit about God's providence for us. Until then, I hope you have a great weekend. God bless.